third part in the Hope series, and uh, next week Pastor Ray will be back on, so uh, he may tack one on or, or carry on or, or whatever. But uh, the third and, and final one for me, and uh, I wanted to ask a question to start this, this message, and that is, have you ever noticed that people handle crisis differently? Have you ever noticed that, that different people handle crisis differently? You know, as I was thinking this week, and we've all had, I mean, as human beings, we've all had, everyone here has had some experience with crisis at various levels. At the very least, we all know people. We have people in our family who have gone through crisis. Most of us have gone through some kind of crisis. We have friends, whatever it is. Uh, it's the human condition in this sinful and, and sin-wrecked world is that people, we, there's pain, there's suffering, there's crisis. But it's very clear that people handle crisis differently. And, uh, and there's two groups of people primarily, and of course it's never quite this simple with human beings. There's a continuum in between and stuff, but there's two basic groups of people and, and again, we've all experienced this. We all know people in these groups because we all know people who have hurt or we've been hurting ourselves. But one group of people, they go through a, a major crisis. They go through a major trauma. And yes, it hurts them. There's sadness. There's crying. There's dark times. But they go through their crisis with, with a grace. There's just a grace and a strength on them, yeah? And we've all known people, it's been my privilege here as a pastor at Southland, I've known a number of you from this family who I have watched go through uh, severe, fiery trials, but, but you're in this group over here, and I've watched people just go through fiery trials with a grace and a strength. And they come out, they might cry in the middle of it, but they come out on the other end with a smile and with joy. Okay? So there's, there's definitely that group, and we've all known people in that group, and they just go through crisis. But, you know, there's another group as well, right? And this group is, you know, and both groups, by the way, look the same before there's a crisis. Both groups are Christians. They both uh, go to church all the time. They're both happy when things are good. But one set, they they, they really go through a crisis well with strength and grace. It's an inspiration. This other group, uh, when the crisis hits, they might might pray a little bit at the beginning. They might keep their hope a little bit at the beginning. But very quickly into the crisis, they get a hard, angry edge. And, and people collapse in a crisis in different ways. Some of them become very hard and bitter. Some of them just get depressed and cease to function. But they fall apart in a crisis. And, and both sets of people were perfectly happy Christians before there was a crisis. But in a crisis, they, it just parts ways. The people in this group, the, it doesn't matter how hard the crisis gets. In fact, the harder it gets, the more they pray. There's, like, there's just this pipeline in them that even in the darkest times when they're hurting and when they're crying and when they're suffering, there's this pipeline of hope and faith in God. They haven't given up on God. And so the darker it gets and the longer it gets, this group over here, they just pray more. There's just hope there. There's always hope in God over here. And this group over here, they get into a crisis and they might have kind of one level of prayers and, you know, when, 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 for a week they're able to pray. But very quickly it turns and you hear them saying things like, well, God doesn't hear me. Why does God allow this to me? And instead of having hope in God, this group is getting mad at God. They pray less as the crisis goes on. And, uh, you know, Jesus told a parable about exactly this, by the way, Matthew 7, 24 to 27, the fact that people go through crisis in different ways, and the fact that before there was a crisis, they might have both looked healthy. When a crisis happens, there's this splitting up into groups, and Jesus talked about it, Matthew 7, 24 to 27, Jesus says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. The storms of life came, right? 
But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Uh, The first thing I want you to notice about this parable is that both the wise man and the foolish man face the same storms. Same intensity, same types, same frequency, all that sort of stuff. It's not like some preachers are preaching nowadays that the godly, faith-filled person doesn't face the storms and doesn't have to suffer. They both face the storms. Jesus is very clear about it. Both the wise person and the foolish person, we're all going to face storms in this life, no question. The only difference between the two is that the wise man stands. Now, there's a promise in this parable, isn't it? Jesus says the wise man always stands through every storm, always. That's a sign of a wise person. And there's a warning as well because the foolish person's house always collapses. And, you know, it has to do with the foundation, right? Now, here's the interesting thing about foundations. A storm, the ne- no storm has the power to wreck or destroy your foundation. It only exposes it. See, as human beings, we always want to blame our problems. Why, are you, why have you gotten bitter and cynical against God? I'll tell you why. Because this, this, and this happened in my life, and he didn't answer my prayers. And the Bible says, no, no, that's not the reason you got bitter and angry and cynical. You got bitter and angry and cynical. You fell apart because of your foundation, not because of the storm. A storm can't wreck your foundation. A storm can only expose it. And so people, we all look the same pretty much uh, in the good times, but then in a crisis, a storm comes along, a trauma, and it exposes the foundation we're standing on. Now you say, well, what's a foundation? And we could do a whole series on that, just on on what is the foundation that Jesus is talking about. But a big part of what your foundation is is just what you believe. It's what you believe about God. It's what you believe about yourself. It's what you believe about life. It's what you believe about your future. What you believe and how you think about these things is the foundation on which you're standing. Now, if you believe incorrectly about any of these things, if you believe falsely, and of course, uh, many people out of their woundedness, out of things that have happened to them, they've got lies in there. If you believe wrongly about God, and you believe wrongly about life, and you believe wrongly about His Word, and all that sort of stuff, if you believe wrongly about anything, that causes cracks in your foundation. And again, as long as circumstances are fine in your life, you can stand and look okay on a cracked foundation. But the moment a storm comes along, it's gone. And so again, like I said, we could do a whole series on uh, foundation and proper beliefs and believing like the Bible tells us to believe and believing truth. Uh, I just want to, there's this one here in this last message on hope. I want to talk about just an essential, absolutely important, uh, you know, essential uh, piece of your foundation is your picture of who God is. Not, not, and by the way, when I say what's your picture of who God is, I don't mean what you say about him intellectually, what you would put on a piece of paper, because we'd all put the right answers there. But in a crisis, we see what our real picture is, which is, what does our heart really believe about who God is? And I want to talk about two things in particular. I want to talk about the sovereignty of God today, and I want to talk about the goodness of God. Because until we get a proper picture in our hearts that we actually believe, not just we put it on a piece of paper, but until we feel, until we believe it's rock solid in us, this is who God is and it's correct, we won't be ready to, to withstand a crisis. So bow your heads with me and close your eyes and, and then we'll begin to talk about the sovereignty of God. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, this is my goal today. In everything that is said this morning, Jesus, I pray that coming out of this message, people are going to want to go into your presence. They're going to want to trust you. 
I pray that a picture by the power of your Holy Spirit can only come, Lord, it can't come by just talking about you. It can only come by the power of your Holy Spirit that you will begin to open up our hearts and give us a revelation of your majesty and your sovereignty and your goodness today. And Lord, if I mess up all of my words and bumble my way through, Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would meet with us here this morning and show us that we would leave here with our hearts trusting in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The sovereignty and foreknowledge of God. You know, I I, uh, talked to a man from our church family here. He's still a part of our church family here, a godly man. Several years ago, I preached a a message. And uh, this man, I didn't have a long conversation with him. I just met him on the way out. And he said, he said one thing to me. And by the way, I should just give you a little background. This man has been through intense, fiery trials. I mean, pretty much as bad as anyone I know here in this church. He has lost people very dear to him. And he's been through very, very dark times. And, and yet, he's come out on the other side. He's, he's definitely one of this group over here. This is a man, he serves here in a church. And he's got a big smile on his face and he's got joy. His trials didn't break him. Uh, he came through his trials with a grace and with a strength, and he's better now, I think, probably. I didn't know him before, but he's, he's a godly man. And so when people like that talk, people who have been through fiery trials, uh, and they've come out and they've got a godliness about them and a joy and a faith in the Lord, when people like that talk to you, I have a, uh, just a little piece of advice for you. Listen, okay? And so I was on my way out of a message, and he just, he just came by and he said this. He said, the main thing, that's all he said to me. We have a long conversation. He just said this one thing. He said, the main thing that got us through our dark times was the sovereignty of God. Now again, I just want to reemphasize, when a man like that who, is, who walks with the Lord, who has joy and has been through fiery, dark trials, when he says something like that, that's a gold nugget. You just got a gift. You don't forget that. And I've pondered it many times in the, in the years since and, and in my reading of scripture, and I'm fully convinced that what he experienced is totally true. See, it's only when you get fully convinced that God is absolutely in control, that nothing is ever out of his control, that nothing that happens to you is accidental, that God is all-powerful and all-knowing, until you become convinced of that, not just on a shallow level in your head, but in your heart, then every time a crisis hits, you are going to become frantic and panicky. And you won't pray from a position of strength. You won't pray from a position of hope and faith. You will pray from a position of franticness and weakness, which quickly turns to bitterness and hopelessness. Ladon has two, uh, two brothers. They're younger than we are. That makes, I, I mean, my brother, brothers-in-law. I was corrected today. Yesterday I was calling them my brother-in-laws, but it's brothers-in-law, okay? And, uh, but I have two brothers-in-law. Ladon's younger brothers, uh, Carlin and Jordan. And they are easily the best drivers uh, that I know, okay? I mean, uh, you give them uh, four wheels and an engine and a steering wheel and gas pedal, and they will take that vehicle to limits you did not think were possible, okay? And when I first, when I first started to get to know them, uh, I, uh, um, they would take me for drives sometimes, and they race everywhere. I mean, they've raced uh, autocross events. This is a uh, racing event, but they've raced all over, you know, Canada and, and the U.S., and they've won competitions and placed highly and, and done well. They're very good at what they do, okay? But I remember the first few times when they would take me for drives, uh, I had some sweaty palm, white knuckles, very close to Jesus, Jesus help me moments, okay? <laughs> and I thought... Because I didn't know. See, to me, when I first started driving with them, and I didn't, I didn't know the level of their skill yet, uh, I mistook what they were doing for recklessness. 
And I mistook what they were doing for, these guys have a death wish, they're crazy. But very quickly, what I learned is that actually these guys aren't crazy. In fact, I've seen them get mad at other people for doing unsafe things. They just know the limit. They know exactly what their tires can do, what the, what the car can do, what the road conditions can handle. And they know where those limits are. And they know that as long as they're on this side of the limits, they're safe. And they just, they, it's just that they know where those limits are. And they're very good at driving within in those limits and getting the most out of the car. And so actually, they're very safe. And, uh, and so, I mean, I've sat, one time Carlin took me in an autocross event, and I, and I sat beside him, and, and, you're, and you're taking corners in a regular car at like 80 kilometers an hour, 90 degree turns, and stuff is flying out, and, and you're nervous, but eventually you just get this trust, these guys know what they're doing. And I remember one drive in particular that I took with uh, Jordan, uh, Jordan bought a, uh, at one point a number of years ago, he, he bought an, an Audi TT. Now, women... I wouldn't know what that car was either unless he had bought this, okay? And I'd seen it with my own eyes, so don't feel bad. But it's a very impractical, sporty car, okay? There's no reason to have it if you have kids, but if you're a young single guy, okay? So anyway, an Audi TT, very sporty. And he got these, uh, these super expensive tires for it as well. And it, it, for winter tires, they were for ice. And they had these little slits all over the tires that, that open up on the, on the ice. And then when you're, you're braking, you're turning, whatever, they pinch on the ice. And it actually give you uh, grip on the ice, Okay? And so I went over there this one winter a number of years ago on a, on, a, on a day when the roads were very, very slippery and icy, and of course, he wanted to take me out for a drive, okay? And so he took me out, and the first five minutes, again, oh my goodness, was I close to the Lord. And I was just, <laughs> oh. But you know, after a few minutes, you realize again, he knows what he's doing. He knows exactly what these tires can do. He knows what this car can do. And I was able to relax, and I was able to enjoy the ride. Why? Because even though stuff looked crazy to me on the outside, if I had been driving that car we'd be dead because it, that would have been reckless, okay? But I could trust because he knows what he's doing. He knows what this car can handle. He knows what the tires can handle. He knows what he can do. He's practiced this many times. He's skilled. I can just trust that he knows what he's doing. Yet I wonder how many of us do not have a proper picture of God because the moment things start to go crazy in our lives, what do we feel like? Our, you can tell by your prayers what you think about God because our prayers become frantic. Hey, God, would you please notice over here? Hurry up, please, God. You better do something quick. I don't think you see what's happening over here. If you don't do something quick, this is all going to fall apart. It's very frantic. And we have this picture in our hearts that things in our life, when things start to get a little crazy, we have this picture in our hearts that, God is out of, that things are out of control. And so we pray as if things are out of control. When it, when, but when you get a proper picture of God, you realize that nothing can ever be out of his control. In fact, I think sometimes we actually have a picture in our lives that nobody's at the steering wheel. That we have this feeling like God's in the back seat, the car's careening out of control, and it's like, would you wake up back there? And again, that just exposes a completely false picture about God, and it makes us franticky and panicky. Better prayers. You know you have a, a, a proper perspective of the sovereignty and power and all-knowingness of God. When you cease to pray, God, would you notice? Would you hurry up and do something? Frantic prayers. And you begin to go to God and say, Lord, help me. I'm frightened. Lord, give me your heart. Lord, give me your perspective. There's a, it's a total different thing. The people in this group, group have a solid foundation on the sovereignty of God. Things are never out of control. I can go to him. And that's my rock of hope. You know, Job, Job modeled this for us. I mean, he lost his kids. He lost his wealth. He lost his health. He lost I mean, everything you can pretty much imagine here in this world. And he suffered with that. Again, I want to just emphasize that the people in the group that overcome, it's not that they're smiling 
in the midst of their trials. It's not that they're just happy every day. They suffer. They feel pain. And Job did as well, but there's not a franticness. There's not a panic. They have an understanding of who God is. Let me show you this with Job. Job chapter 1, verse 18. And Job is just, we're just picking up on a story here. He's, he's already lost. He's already had a bunch of people come in and give him bad news. This happened, and this barn is gone, and this happened, and these animals are gone, and this happened, and those servants are gone. He's lost all his wealth already, and now he's going to get the news that all of his kids have died. He's got ten kids, seven sons, and three daughters, and they're all going to be gone in one shot. Again, imagine this. This has really happened, okay? This is not just words on pages of a book. This is a real story and real people involved here. Think about how Job is feeling. Think about how you would feel. While he was yet speaking, so he's getting bad news, another person comes with bad news. There came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Okay, now just again, imagine the shock that Job is receiving here. Not, not just even one kid. I mean, all, all of your kids, gone. And Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. We're going to carry on with this passage in just a moment, but I just want to stop here for a moment. Again, Job is feeling intense pain. He's not just big smile on his face, oh, praise Jesus. That's not, that's not how he responds to it. The godly people feel pain. And he, and he shaves his head and he tears his robe and he falls down before, on the ground before the Lord. But I want you to notice something else here that is just about mind-boggling is that he worships God in the shock of his pain and the agony, and he's shaved his head, and he's torn his robes, and he's lying down before, the God, before God, and it says that he worshipped God. That, that is stunning. That's the first sign right there that this guy's on a solid foundation. He's going to come through on the other end. Because a lot of people, the first thing they do when stuff like this happens is they turn away from God, right? And Job goes and he worships God. Now, I want to, just before we go to the rest of this passage, I, I just want to show you how Job worshipped, because I don't want us to get the wrong picture of how he worshipped. When it says here that Job worshiped God, it does not mean that he sang a happy praise song. That's not the only way to worship God. And then the scripture certainly shows us that that is not what he did. He did not just sing a happy praise song. Okay? I don't even think, and it certainly doesn't show us anywhere that he did this, so I think I'm safe to say it. I don't think his worship included even thanking God yet at this point. We talked a couple of weeks ago about uh, Corey Ten Boom and Betsy Ten Boom and how they thank God for the fleas in their barracks. I don't think in the initial shock of his pain, at least the Bible doesn't show us anywhere that he did it, I don't think that Job thanked God even. That's not what his worship was. He wasn't happy. It wasn't a happy praise song. He wasn't thanking God. Let me tell you three ways that Job worshiped God. First thing is he cried his tears to God instead of crying his tears away from God. That's worship. I just said a minute ago, a lot of people, this is what happens. Something bad happens in their life, and they're actually mad at God. Even if they won't consciously admit it, they go and they will cry their tears in a corner away from God. Bitter, angry, cynical tears. And they'll cry their tears to everyone else, but they won't go and cry their tears to God. Job took his tears. He was not happy. He was in pain. He took his tears, and he cried them to God. Just the act. By the way, God loves that. Just the act of going to God with your tears is worship. I'm in pain as you sob in agony, but you're sobbing those tears to God. That's, again, the first sign that you're on a solid foundation. Remember, a wise man's house always stands in every storm, and a foolish man's never does. This is the first sign that you're a wise man, because remember, who's in charge of it all? Who has the power 
to solve your problems. Who made the universe? God. And so Job goes and he cries his tears to God. Well, there's two other ways. I'm going to read this now in just a moment. I'll show you the other two ways that Job worshiped God. Not only did he cry his tears to God, but in his tears to God, he acknowledged two things. He acknowledged, he continued to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. He did not panic. He did not get frantic. He did not say, God, you haven't noticed. God, things are out of your control. What are you doing? My life is careening. We're about to all, you know, it's all gone. I'm, I'm going to lose everything. Right through it all, he continues to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. I'm going to show it to you in just a moment. God is still in control. He was in control when I was blessed, and he's still in control when I'm not being blessed. And he also uh, continues to acknowledge the goodness of God, even in everything he's lost. That's how Job worshipped. Let me read you the rest of this passage. I want to show you some of the most profound, stunning statements ever made by anyone in in the midst of a fiery trial. And this is how Job worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, he was sovereign over all my blessings, and the Lord has taken away, he is sovereign over my losses. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. We are looking here at an absolute gold mine of wisdom. This is a foundation of a person who's going to go through any storm. Let me break it down for you a little bit further because there's some key components here of Job's Job's belief system about himself and about life and about God that is absolutely essential for going through uh, pain and suffering. First of all, Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I'm going to leave. Job had an absolute clear perspective of the fact that we human beings are entitled to nothing. I came into this world with nothing. I'm leaving with nothing. Therefore, I deserve nothing. I want you to see the utter lack of a sense of entitlement in Job's heart. I came in with nothing. I'm leaving with nothing. Anything above nothing I get in this world in between is an absolute blessing from God. God didn't have to give me a family at all. I didn't come into this world with a family. And if he, didn't ha- and if he hadn't given me a family in the first place, I would have had nothing to lose, yeah? By the way, is that a radical thing, way to look at life or not? I didn't come into this world with life or health or anything. The fact that I had any life or health, if, I w- if he would never have given that to me in the first place, I would have had nothing to lose anyway. See, it's only when you lose, and a lot of people say, well, I don't have a sense of entitlement. Here's how you know if you have a sense of entitlement to your family or to your health or to your wealth or to your business or to the level of prosperity you're at. I'll tell you how you know if you have a sense of entitlement, if you're mad when it's gone. If you're mad when you lose something, I didn't say sad. Job felt sad. Sadness is a perfectly fine emotion, but if you're bitter and hard and mad when you lose something, you know what that means? That means you think you deserve to have it. You earned it. God didn't give that thing to you. God didn't bless you with that thing. You earned it. And so it is an injustice that that thing is gone now. And Job said, I came in with nothing. I left with nothing. The fact that I ever had more than nothing was a blessing from God, so it's not unjust that I lost it. It's only when you lose your whole sense of entitlement that you can actually begin to be thankful to God in all things. We talked about being thankful in all things two weeks ago. Because now, when Job loses a child, you, you don't go, God, why have you taken away this child from me? You go, thank you for the 20 years I had with them. Isn't that a different perspective? You didn't have to give me those kids in the first place. If you would have never given me those kids, I wouldn't be in pain from losing them. So thank you that I got 20 years with them, 15 years, 30 years with them. There's no entitlement there. There's just gratitude. 
If you don't have a sense of entitlement about your business and about the things you own, because you realize you came in with nothing and everything you had was from God in the first place, well, then when they're all gone, you say, well, thanks for the 10 years of great health I had. Thanks for the 50 years of good health I had. Thanks for the 30 years of a great business I had. I came in with nothing. I'm leaving with nothing. And in between, you gave me 30 years to enjoy those things. Thank you, Lord. Rather than shaking your fist at God, why have you taken them away? Those were mine. There's no sense of entitlement in Job. Because there's no sense of entitlement, he gives God glory on the way up, the Lord gave. And he gives God glory on the way down, and the Lord has taken away. Because God is sovereign in all of it. I came in with nothing, I'm leaving with nothing. God's sovereign over everything I have and don't have. God is in control even when things are taken away from your life. Now, of course, we don't like that. I'm going to deal with this over and over again in this message. We don't like to think, and we're being taught by preachers today, over and over again, a loving God would never take anything from you. By the way, as you're going to see later in this message, that belief system will wreck you in a crisis, and I'll show you why. But we're being taught that a good God would never let anything bad happen to you. The only reason bad things are happening to you is because of other things. The fact of the matter is that Job says, the Bible says, the Lord has taken away. Now, what do you, you say, well, what do you mean that God has taken away? What do you mean that God is in control even when I lose stuff? Um, what do you mean? I mean, let's look at the story of Job again. Do you, I mean, do I mean when I say God is in control that God just sitting one day and goes, yeah, I'm going to take everything away from Job, and, and then he just takes it all away from him? Nope, that's not the picture we get in Job. Uh, certainly, there's people with free will. People do bad things. There's a, there's a devil, and he has a free will. He does bad things, right? And, and Job has all of this in there, right? So, so Job's problems, you go into Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, it's very clear that Satan plays a big role in all this. Uh, Satan despises Job. Satan doesn't think highly of Job. He goes to God and he says, uh, Job is a fake. He looks good, but he only looks good because he's got everything going for him. Um, and, and so I'd like to test him and prove it to you, God. And God says, okay. And then Satan actually carries out the bad stuff. But the thing you have to remember is this, and this is what Job got, is that Satan didn't get Job down because God wasn't looking. It's not like Satan did a sneak attack and whammo, I got Job, and God turns around, oh, I can't believe that happened to you, Job. Okay? That would be a scary world to live in, yeah? If Satan could have gotten to Job apart from God's permission, like God didn't know, like Satan just snuck in and did it, that's scary because who knows what could happen to you or me next. And Satan also didn't overpower God. I mean, it's not like Satan sent his forces to one end of the world and God sent most of his forces there and then Satan overpowered him at Job and got Job. It's not that. See, you have to get this picture in your heart of God being all-powerful, all-knowing. Satan is just like a little mosquito to God. He just, he can flick him away. He can squish him. He can blow on him, and he's gone. The only reason Satan gets to do anything to Job is because he goes to God and says, please. He has to go to God and get permission. That's the God we serve. Nothing happens to you. Nothing happens to you that it surprised God or overpowered God. It goes through God. And so Satan has to ask permission, and only when he gets permission, and he only gets permission to do certain things. God says, you won't do this, and you can't do this. You're only allowed to do anything in this. And Satan goes to do it. So, now ultimately, Satan was the one who was kind of directing this and doing this, but ultimately it came through God's permission, and so Job and, and the scriptures tell us, the Lord has taken, it, taken away. It's ultimately from the Lord. And the Lord is in sovereign control. Now again, people don't like this picture of God, 
because they say this makes God a mean God. And I've heard preachers say uh, stupid things about this, and they say, well, that makes God an abusive God. And they try to make this thing out like God doesn't allow bad things in your life, and God doesn't give permission to Satan to do bad things in your life, and they try to come up with other reasons. So let me just show you before we move on, because I'm going to show you in this message that this is actually such a wonderful message. You might think right now that I'm painting a bad picture of God. At the end of this message, you're going to realize this is the most joyful thing you can know, is that God is in control. But let me just show you. First, let's just, I want to just beat down any of the arguments in your head that you might have against this God being in control in all things good and bad in your life. We only have four alternatives about God. Ken, if you could put those up. God has to be one of these following things, okay? So just put on your thinking caps with me for a bit. And you guys are smart enough for this. You are a higher than average IQ church. I really believe that. At least I'm flattering you about it. But anyway, God has to be one of these four things. Has to be, okay? There's no other options. He has to be one of these groups. He's either all-knowing and all-powerful. By the way, that's the one we believe here as a church. And I'm certain if I asked anyone in here, uh, I'm certain every one of you in here would agree with that. But I'm going to show you that some people actually, and some people say that they believe that, but they don't actually believe that, right? Or, so he's either all-knowing and all-powerful, or he's all-powerful and not all-knowing, right? I'm just giving you all the potentials that God could be. Or he's all-knowing but not all-powerful, or he's neither. He's neither all-knowing nor all-powerful, right? He's got to be one of those four. I mean, if he's number four, then he's not even God. That's just like us. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. He's just like a human being like us, all right? Obviously, he's not that one, all right? And we believe he's all-knowing and all-powerful, and I'm sure every one of you in here would agree with this, and I'm going to show you a bunch of scripture in just a moment. But first, let's just think through some of the implications of who God is. If he is all-knowing and all-powerful, first of all, if he is all-knowing, that means he knows all things. That's self-explanatory. He knows all things in the past. He knows all things in the future. He knows all things. He knows everything that's ever happened. He knows everything that's going on right now. He knows every thought in your head. He knows every event that will happen in the future. Okay? Now, let's, now, let's just make that, uh, let's try to make that practical. Let's say some of you, one of you here today, maybe you had a fender bender in the Extra Foods parking lot this past week. Okay? Now, let me ask you something. Did God know about that fender bender in advance? Of course he did. Okay? By the way, is it comforting to you to think that he didn't know that? Like, would it be comforting to you to think that, uh, you know, God went on coffee break and you had a fender bender and he goes, whoa, oh, good thing so-and-so didn't die. Whew, because that wasn't part of my plan and I didn't see that coming. Would that be comforting to you? No. So if he knows all things, then that means he knows all things before they happen. Would it be comforting to you if you got a cancer diagnosis and the first time you heard the news was the first time God was hearing about the news? That would not be comforting to you, would it? So when we say that he knows all things, and the Bible certainly agrees with us, as I will show you in just a moment, we're saying he knows everything before it happens. Every single thing that will ever happen. He has already known about it since the beginning of the world. He knows all things. Now let's put all-knowing together with all-powerful. If he's all-powerful, this means he can do whatever he likes. In fact, I just read this again in my Bible this morning. I was spending time with the Lord in the Psalms. And... uh, One of the Psalms, and I I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but basically it goes like this. It says, uh, whatever the Lord desires to do, he does. He's all-powerful. If he wants to stop something, can he stop it? I mean, but what what if Satan and all his hordes and all of mankind all ganged up to do one thing God didn't want at the same time? Would we be able to do it? Not a chance. 
I, I mean, again, Satan is, I mean, not even a mosquito to God. But see, you put all the bad angels, all humankind, doesn't matter what, he is so infinitely powerful, it's just a flick of his finger, it's just a blow of his breath. He does whatever he wants, whenever he wants. If he wants to stop something, he stops it. And if he wants to do something, he does it. That's what it means to be all-powerful, infinite in power and strength. Infinite. It's not an arm wrestle, and he's got to arm wrestle Satan to get done what he wants to do. He just does it. Satan asks him for permission. It's not a fair fight. Okay? Now, let's put those two things together. If God knows all things before they happen, he knew your fender bender would happen before it happened, and if he has the power to stop anything that he wants to stop, then that means that if your fender bender happened, he saw that it was going to happen, and he could have stopped it if he wanted to, but he didn't. So what does that mean? He allowed it. Am I right? He had to have allowed it. If he knew it was going to happen, and if he had the strength to stop it, then he allowed it. Which means that every single thing that has ever happened on planet Earth to you or to any other human being has gone through his hands first because he knows all things before they happen. And he can stop anything he wants from happening, which means that all things, nothing has ever happened that God didn't allow. I didn't say that God likes everything that happens. I didn't say that God likes sin. He's created us to have free will. It's a whole other message. We've talked about that lots this year. In summer, we did it. But it does mean that even he doesn't like it, he lets people choose sinful things, he lets the devil choose sinful things, he lets us do things he doesn't like, but he knows everything we're going to do before we do it, and he decides whether we still get to do it or not. He allows everything that has ever happened to you was expressly allowed by God. And you say, I don't, I don't like that picture of God. Well, then you only have one of the other options because you can't stay with all-knowing and all-powerful. Do you see where we are now? Because there's a lot of prosperity teachers today that are saying God, a loving father would never do that. But in their goal to make God seem loving, they make God less than what he is, which will actually rob you of hope in a crisis. Because if you say he didn't allow everything, okay, well, let's look at the implications. How did he not allow it? Did he not see it was going to happen? He didn't see you were going to get cancer. Oh, shoot. But you got it anyway. Now he's got to work a plan together with his angels. He's got to gather together a quick meeting. How are we going to turn this for good? I didn't see this one coming. Is that comforting to you in a crisis? Maybe he saw it coming. Maybe he's all-knowing, but he's not all-powerful. Maybe he saw that you were going to get cancer. Maybe he saw that you were going to be in a horrible accident, and he tried really hard to stop it, but he couldn't. Does that comfort you in a crisis? It most certainly does not. The only God who is worth going to in a crisis is the God who knows and the God who is all-powerful. And that means that if anything has ever happened to you, it means he allowed it. Let me show you this in Scripture now that he is all-knowing. I'm going to show you why this is good, by the way. I'm going to show you why this is good. This is the best news you've ever heard about God, or at least some of the best news you've ever heard about God. It's going to give you a tremendous foundation for tough times. But let me first prove this to you from the Bible, not just from philosophy. Let's look at what the scriptures say about God, and this is all over. We can only scratch the surface, but the scriptures are very clear that he's both all-knowing and all-powerful. Very, very, very clear. I'm going to show you a few. Psalm 139. Does God know what's going to happen in stock markets next week? Does he know what you're going to say next? Does he know what you're going to do? Does he know when you're going to die? He certainly does. Psalm 139, verse 4. Even before... Look at that. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Before a word. 
is on my tongue, O Lord. You know it all together. He knows every word I'm going to say the rest of this message. He knows every word you're going to say for the rest of your life. He knows everything you're going to think. He knows everything you're going to do. By the way, guess what? Something about you need to know about God for when you're going to prayer that you have a proper posture before him. He's never surprised. We, don't, don't we often go to God as if he's surprised? Because we, put, we, we, uh, we impose our qualities on him. We think of him the way we, we are ourselves. And so we go to God and we're shocked. I can't believe what's happening. And we go to him as if he's shocked. He's not surprised. You can't be surprised when you saw everything that was ever going to happen and you chose which things would happen and which ones wouldn't because you had to give permission. Then you're not surprised by anything. He's not surprised after you sin. By the way, this just makes him even more amazing, his forgiveness, because he forgives you when you say, I'm sorry for lust, and he sees a thousand other times you're going to lust yet after that, and he still forgives you right now in the present. That's incredible. And he's never surprised. Before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. He knows everything you're going to think before you think it. He knows everything you're going to do before you do it. And he knows everything that's ever going to happen to you long before it happens. Psalm 139, 16. This is the God you were praying to. We need to let these biblical truths just saturate our hearts. So when we come to prayer, we're coming into prayer with a position of faith in God. We might be suffering severely. We might be crying our eyes out. We might be in absolute agony, but we have faith in God. Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written, uh, were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. God saw all of your days. The moment he made the earth, he already saw who you were. I mean, he formed you in your mother's womb. He already had designed and invented you, your personality, everything, long before, I mean, right when he created Adam, he already saw each one of us, and he had planned each one of us out. And he ordained all of our days. He sees exactly how many days we get here on earth. And some of us get 15,000, and some of us get 20,000, and some get 27,000, and some get a few more, and some get a lot less. But he saw exactly how many days you would have here on earth. And he said, not only that, it says he wrote wrote in his book about all your days. He didn't just know how many. He knew what you would do on each of those days. He knew exactly what you do. He he just saw all of your days, and they're all written down in a book. Tuesday, October, whatever, Bob would do this, and this, and this, and this. And I'm going to have to forgive him for that one, but he's not going to say sorry until over here. And after he says sorry, he's going to do it again over here, but he's getting more sincere. He just sees your whole life. No surprises with him. This is the God that you were praying to. By the way, this is not fatalism. This is not to say that everything is foreordained. God gave you free will. It's just he sees how you're going to use it. You and me still have to go out of here and make choices every single day, but God sees in advance what you're choosing. And he's working with you in the midst of that. You know, it goes beyond, I mean, the awesomeness of God and the all-knowingness of God goes beyond just him knowing you in your individual life. This is multiplied by millions in the fact that he knows uh, every event in human history and he sets the boundaries of what is allowed to happen and what is not. That's his, him and his all-knowingness and all-powerfulness. And one of the most incredible statements, I'm going to read you this, it's from Acts 17, it's the Apostle Paul. This is one of the most incredible statements about the awesomeness of God you'll find anywhere in Scripture. We read verses like this, and then we just casually go on. We need to sit on these verses and go, my goodness, this is the God I'm praying to. Because we're praying all wrong. We're coming to God, and a marriage is in trouble. Oh, Lord, please, please do something. Please, 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 please do something. Please notice. Please care. Please take control. 
And that is not the way you pray to a God who knew everything that was going to happen and is all powerful. We go to him and we say, Lord, I'm hurting. Give me your heart in this. Give me your perspective on this. Show me the way through. It's praying from a position of strength because you're praying to a God of strength. But Acts 17, 24 to 27, one of the most awesome statements about God anywhere in the scripture, and this is what Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all, look at that, he, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now I'm going to read the rest of the passage. The rest of the passage is even more amazing. I'm going to stop here for just a moment. I want you to see the sovereignty of God in your life right now. Paul says here that God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You know what that means? That means that the only reason you're breathing right now, the only reason your heart is still beating right now and you're able to listen to me preach this message, the only reason I'm able to keep talking, the only reason each and every one of us as people here is alive right now and, is, and continues to be alive is because right now God is sovereignly continuing to give you life and breath and everything. And the moment he decides to pull that away, you expire, it's it, that's the end of your life. No questions. The only reason you are alive right now is because God is sovereignly holding you. And you think he doesn't notice you? He's sovereignly keeping you alive. And all, every one of the seven billion people on the planet right now, the ones who are in the womb and are not yet born, the ones who are babies, the one who are, ones who are very old and they're in the hospital, in the nursing home, and everyone in between, the only reason that the seven billion people who are alive on the earth right now are alive right now is because God is giving them life and breath right now to continue keeping them alive. And any one of us at any point, he says, that's it, that's the days I ordained for them, that's over. And you move on to the next life, which is much longer, all right, and never ends. But he gives all. That's his sovereignty. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Again, this is the God you are praying to. He doesn't notice you. The fact that you're still alive means he notices you. The fact that you're able to pray to him shows that he notices you. He's keeping you alive so that you'll go to him. Let's read the rest of it. And he made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. It's not just on an individual level, it's on the level of nations. He foresaw the scope and the sway and the ebb and flow of all of human history from the very moment he made the earth. This is the God you're praying to. And he saw every nation that would ever exist. He saw the rise and fall of each one. He saw the rise and fall of all the nations. He saw the rise and fall of the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and the British and the Americans. He's seen them all. And not only has he foreseen when they would come to power, he decides how far they get to spread geographically and how long they last time-wise. He he foresaw the rise of Nazi Germany in the 1930s and he said, in 1945, you're done. And you only get to go this far. And he saw the rise of the communist empire and the Soviet Union. And he said, in 1989, you're done. He already sees the end of capitalism in the West. He sees the rise and fall of all of it. He sets the boundaries and they go no further. This is the God you and I are praying to. This is the God you're praying to. And when this begins to fill your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is when you begin to have faith in that God in the midst of a crisis. You don't have faith in your faith. You don't have faith in yourself. You're not just working yourself up. When you go into his presence, you're going into the presence of the one who loves you and is in control of the entire universe. 
Now you're praying from a place of hope and faith, and you can, you can begin to overcome. Now again, I know that some people would argue that the picture I'm painting for you of God here is a bad picture because look at all the bad things he's allowing. Let me show you now to finish this message three reasons why the awesome sovereignty of God should give us all tremendous hope. Tremendous hope. I'll show you three reasons. First reason why the sovereignty of God in all things, the good and the bad, why the sovereignty of God will fill you with hope. First reason is this. Everything has a purpose. You don't have to fear bad luck or some random accident. I want you to think about that for a moment. If God knew everything that would happen before it happened, and he had the power to stop it, that means he allowed it. That means nothing has ever happened to you in your life. Nothing has ever happened to any of your kids that was an accident. Nothing. Nothing happened to you or to your kids because God wasn't watching or because something happened that God uh, was overpowered and it happened anyway. Nothing that has ever, nothing that has ever happened to you was an accident. Now again, that doesn't mean that God liked everything that happened to you. Evil people do evil things. And I'm going to get to that in just a moment too with the story of Joseph. Evil people do evil things, but because God is sovereign, he can bend those evil things to good. But nothing that has ever happened to you is an accident. But you know what, you know what that means? If everything that has ever happened to you had to first pass through his hands, and he had to allow it or disallow it, the fact that he allows it means that it has a purpose. Nothing that has ever happened to you in your past was an accident. That means that everything in your past has a purpose. Some of the stuff you went through where evil people did bad things to you, it has a purpose. God allowed it for some better good. He didn't like what they were doing. It was their free will choice. But he saw it in advance and didn't stop it because he knew that he would let that thing happen because he was going to turn a better good into, out of it. And by the way, here's another thing that we have to remember about the sovereignty of God. It's not just that, because there's, there's another side to look at this too. Not only did everything that happened to you, he had to allow it. I want you to think about this. Think about all the things he didn't allow. Think of all the things he didn't allow. He might have allowed some bad things into your life, but he's going to turn them for good. But think of all the bad things he didn't allow. He only allowed the ones into your life to have a purpose. And Joseph is an awesome story of this, Right? Joseph, his brothers hate him, okay? And they do some horrible things to him. I mean, if he would have been living nowadays, he would have been sitting on a psychiatrist's chair for the rest of his life. You know, my family doesn't like me. I feel deep agony in my heart. And, uh, and he would have tried to cope for the rest of his life. But anyway, Joseph, right? His brothers come to him, and his brothers hate him, and they want to kill him. Does God let them kill him? Do they have any idea that God's working in keeping them from killing? No, they don't. This is the sovereignty of God. It doesn't matter whether people believe in God or not. He's still sovereignly working. And he's using their own impulses against them. Joseph's brothers wanted to kill Joseph. And God said, no, that's not part of the plan. I disallow. And then they get the idea to put him into a pit and sell him into slavery. But they sell him into slavery to a specific country, right? Egypt. That's not an accident either, is it? So they do this horrible thing, and you say, why would God allow this to be born into such an abusive family? And they abuse their brother, and they hate him. Like, think of the rejection he feels from his older brothers, totally rejected by the whole lot of them, and then sold into slavery. What a horrible thing. Why would God not allow it? Why would God ever allow something like that to happen to a young man? Well, the reason is because God can also foresee many years ahead and he sees a horrendous famine that's going to come on all the Middle Eastern world and has the potential to kill thousands of people and wipe out nations. 
And so he uses this bad thing. He uses this bad thing. He sees this bad thing's going to happen beforehand. He sees other bad things happening too. But he says, I'm not allowing that. I'm not allowing that. I'm not allowing that. I will allow this one because I'm going to turn it for good. I'm going to turn it into the salvation of thousands of people and nations by getting a man who will listen to me into power in Egypt through this bad thing over here. Now, you want to know what's really mind-boggling to me is this. The very guys who wanted to kill Joseph, who wanted to harm him, put him into slavery, it was the very evil that they did that ends up saving their lives later when they go for a handout, yeah? That'll get your mind all twisted up. They're doing a real bad thing, and God uses the very bad thing they're doing. If they didn't do the bad thing, they're going to die later, but that'll hurt your head, so let's just stop thinking about it right now. (laughs) That's the sovereignty of God. He can bend anything to his will. He only allows those things to happen that he can bend to his will. And I want you to notice what happens when they meet with Joseph in, in Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, his brothers, many years later, they've done this horrible thing. It's been weighing on their conscience ever since. They come before Joseph. They find out he's Joseph, and they say, we're dead men. The moment dad dies, he's going to slaughter us all, okay? And I want you to notice what Joseph says to them. As for you, you meant evil against me. You used your free will. You didn't have to do that. That was a sin what you did, right? You meant evil against me. But God saw you meaning to do this evil long in advance, and he allowed you to do it because he had a better purpose. Look at this. Against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. I want you to notice that there isn't a trace of bitterness in this statement. I mean, how many of us in a situation like that, like, well, first of all, how many of us would have just killed the brothers, okay? Don't raise your hand, okay? (laughs) But how many of us, even if we went to the next level and said, well, we won't kill them, I'm going to just, but it would have been painful for us. Like there would have been, at least we would have rehashed for a couple of chapters. Do you know what I went through? Let's have a spill session. Let's talk about our feelings. I really felt rejected by you, right? There's not a trace of that here. You know why? Because Joseph is fully convinced that God allowed it. It wasn't an accident. Joseph said, the only reason you were allowed to do it was because God let you do it, and the only reason he let you do it was because he had a better purpose. How can I be bitter if God's in control like that? Can't be. It's the sovereignty of God. And this brings up the second reason, which I've already said, but put up there now. This brings up the second reason why the sovereignty of God should inspire you with incredible hope, and that is because God only allows things to happen in your life that are for your good. Only. I said before, in his sovereignty, you think, well, he's allowed a lot of bad things in my life. Someday you're going to see all the bad things he didn't allow in your life. And you're going to go, wow. He specifically only picked in his foreknowledge the ones that would be he could use for your good. And you know, a lot of people, it's human nature for us to fear the future, yeah? We fear the future. We fear what's going to happen with the economy. And what's going to happen with hog prices. And what's going to happen with this? And what's going to happen, am I going to get a miscarriage? And what's going to happen with this decision over here? And what's going to happen with this government? And, and it's human nature to fear the future. And we fear for our kids. What if they get in a bad accident? We fear a, a diagnosis. What's going to happen if I have cancer? And we, we fear for the future. And one of the reasons we fear the future is because it's, it's unknown and it's out of our control. And we fear something just knocking all of our dreams, we have dreams for our families, and we have dreams for our future, and we, have, we just fear some random accident coming and knocking our dreams off rail. Well, here's the thing I want to tell you today. It's true that your dreams might not happen, but that's only if your dreams aren't what God's dreaming. Because nothing random, if it's true that God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and it is, then nothing random can ever happen to you in the future. There is no such thing as a random accident. I didn't say you, someone in your family wouldn't get in a car accident, but if they do, it's not random from God's perspective. 
He, saw, he sees it happening already now before it happens in the future, and he decides if it's going to be le- allowed to happen or not. And if he allows it to happen, it's for, it's for the overall good. It's for your good, it's for their good, it's for the good of the world. And it can be turned to good. There's no randomness. There's no randomness in the economy. There's no randomness in anything. God is fully in control. I'll show you a verse, Proverbs 16, 33. And I mean, the moment I wanted to talk on sovereignty, I'm like, I am putting this verse in the message. I can already wait. This is an awesome verse. Look at this. We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. I mean, you would think that something as little as rolling a dice, that is random chance. And God says, how can there be random chance when I'm all-knowing and all-powerful? I saw what would happen before it happened. I allowed to happen what is going to be allowed to happen, and I disallowed to happen what's going to be dis- what I don't want to allow to happen. And he says, even a roll of the dice, the Lord determines how they fall. There is no randomness in your future. There's no randomness in your past. Everything that's ever happened to you has a purpose, and you don't have to fear randomness in the future. Walk with God. And this brings up the third reason why the sovereignty of God should give us tremendous hope, and that is this. God will never allow anything into your life that you aren't strong enough to endure with his help. He'll never allow. You know, the devil's going to come to you and you'll be in a crisis and the devil says, you can't handle this. You can't handle this. And he's going to accuse you. And he's going to accuse God too. The devil accuses God to you too. He doesn't just accuse us to God. He accuses God to us. He'll say, God doesn't notice. God's not in control. And you can't handle this. Well, guess what? God is in control. And the fact that he sees all things before they happen, and the fact that he has the power to stop anything from happening that he doesn't want to happen, means that he decides which trials you face. And here's the thing that the Bible tells us, is that the Bible tells us he will never let you face a trial that's more than your ability to handle. With his help. You're going to have to walk with him. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Now look at this next statement. I love this next statement. And he will not let you, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That is the sovereignty of God there. He will not let you. The devil wants to tempt you beyond your ability. Evil people want to tempt you beyond your ability. They want to test you. They want to break you down. They want to take you past what you can handle. And God says, I will not let them. I don't allow it. And anything I don't allow can't happen. He says, I know exactly who you are. I know exactly what your threshold is. And I will only allow you to handle what you can endure as long as you walk with me. You're going to need his strength. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Already, he only allows things to happen in your life, which there's a way through it. There's a way through it. And so you've got to walk with God. This is why you walk with God. You don't go to him frantic, barking instructions. Do this, do that, do this, do that. As if you know best how to get through it. You're talking to the sovereign one who saw this problem from thousands of years before. He specifically allowed this one for your good. Instead of going to frantically bark orders, we go to listen and to unburden our pain. Lord, I'm hurting. Give me strength. And we walk with him. And, then, and we affirmed him, Lord, I know that there's a way through this crisis because you wouldn't put something in my life that there isn't a way through it. And then you begin to walk with him. But you know what? If you don't walk with him, then there is no, you could collapse. There's the foolish and the wise. Some stand, some collapse. It's only the ones who walk with the Lord who get to go through. Doesn't this just make you want to pray? Doesn't this make you want to pray? You know what's amazing about God? This God who is sovereign likes you. He's sovereign over the whole universe. He is all-powerful. 
He knows all things that are ever going to happen to you. And he likes you. Why would you not want to pray? And why when you go to pray, prayer would you just want to tell him a bunch of stuff? Go to love him. Go to listen to him. There isn't a single problem in your life that he cannot fix. Let me finish with this. Isaiah 40, verses 27 to 31. I would challenge all of you to meditate on this chapter this week. Awesome chapter. It's all about the sovereignty of God. It's all about his awesomeness. Awesomeness, 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 amazingness. Right through the whole chapter. And in the last five verses, it says this. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? In other words, the Lord doesn't notice. Why do you say that? Why do you pray as if God doesn't notice what's happening to you? Why do you do that? Why do you say and why do you speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? In other words, God doesn't care. Why do you say God doesn't care? Why do you say God doesn't notice? Why? Why do you feel that? You're not going to go through a crisis feeling that. If you feel that, you're going to turn away from God. Why do you feel that? It's a lie from the enemy. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He's all-powerful. Nothing's out of his control. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. It's infinite. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. I want you to notice here that not everybody renews their strength. Not everyone. There's that saying, right? Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. False. Some people, it wrecks them. Some people, it makes them weaker. Some people, it makes them bitter. Whatever doesn't kill you doesn't necessarily make you stronger. A lot of people, it makes them weaker. It's only they who wait on the Lord. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Not just anyone. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Before I pray, I want you just to keep your eyes closed. Throughout this whole message series, I just keep telling you the same thing over and over again. He's sovereign, he's in control, he's awesome, he's on a throne. And none of this matters if you just listen about it and you don't actually go and be with him. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. So before I pray for you, this is what I want. Right now, I want you to think in your mind. Let the Holy Spirit bring it or you just think it your own thoughts. It doesn't matter to me. But I want you to think of a time in the next two or three days. Today, is it today, is it tonight, is it tomorrow morning? I want you to think when in the next couple of days are you going to go and meet with the Lord? When? Some of you actually haven't even gone to meet with him yet since I started preaching this series. That This series is nothing if you don't go and meet with the Lord. When in the next couple of days are you going to meet with the Lord? I want you to think that thought and commit it to the Lord right now. And the second thing I want you to do is I want you to think where, where are you going to meet with God? When are you going to meet with God in the next couple of days? And where are you going to meet with God? Whoa, whoa. What a privilege we get to go and stand before him. And he likes you. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I want to just pray for a powerful revelation of your sovereignty to come on every person in this room here today. That it will just sweep over our hearts like a wave. That we will become awestruck with who you are. Father, I pray that as people go into your presence, Lord, everyone here today, they just, they just thought of a when and they thought of a where. They're going to come and meet with you in the next couple of days. I pray 100% of the time, Lord, you will be faithful, that you will meet them and they will have a sweet and fresh revelation of your spirit. I pray all these things in your name, Jesus. 
Amen.